Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Philo of Alexandria was the most well-known representative of Hellenistic Judaism in the first century. His many books combined Platonism with scripture via allegory, a daring project that had a massive influence on Christian thinkers. Clement of Alexandria followed in Philo's footsteps a century later, doing for Christian scripture what Philo had done for the Jewish Bible. In addition to covering these two, we'll take a couple of detours to learn about the city of Alexandria, as well as a few of Plato's important ideas. Although overlooked today in most discussions of the history of Christology, Philo and Clement lay the foundations upon which Origen, the Cappadocians, and Augustine would build generations later. Here now is episode 487, Early Church History Part 7, Philo and Clement of Alexandria. Philo is someone who lived in the first century. Clement is someone who lived in the second century. But before I talk about either of these two powerhouse intellectuals, we have to think about Alexandria, Egypt, and consider it for a moment. This is a city that was founded by Alexander the Great in 331 BC, and that's why it's called Alexandria. It's not the only city he founded and called after himself, but it's the most famous of all the Alexandrias. It became the capital of Egypt for a millennium until the Muslims came in 641. And to this day, it is the largest city in the Mediterranean that's actually on the sea. Based on census data that we have from the year 32, AD 32, like right around the time of Christ, The city of Alexandria had 180,000 adult male citizens, putting its population somewhere in the range of half a million, potentially. So we're talking about a bustling, major metropolis in Egypt. It's a port city where the Nile connects to the Mediterranean Sea is where the city is. And this is so significant for a lot of reasons. We're going to come back to Alexandria over and over again, but... This is my excuse to tell you about it now. The Nile River predictably overflows its banks every year, which is awesome because that means you have a natural irrigation, making that part of Egypt the breadbasket for the Mediterranean world, specifically for the capital city of Rome, which had by this time, by the first and second century, has started to grow beyond its ability to be supported by the farms surrounding the city. So they needed to bring in grain. How do they get that grain? Ships from Alexandria were bringing that grain. Along with the grain, ideas, philosophy, lots of concepts are transferring all around as well. But before I get to that, I want to mention that there was also an island off the city of Alexandria, about three-quarter mile off the coast, and they built a land bridge all the way to it called the Pharos, and they built a massive lighthouse on this island, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and it was 338 feet tall, 
this lighthouse. Just absolute massive structure, about 30 stories tall. And so that was a world-famous icon of the city of Alexandria. It was a city of great learning and diversity. It had world-famous, massive library filled with all kinds of different literature. It was in Alexandria that the Jews translated the Bible, their Bible, the Old Testament, from Hebrew into Greek, two centuries before Christ. Where? In Alexandria. Huge Jewish population, huge Greek population, huge native Egyptian population called the Coptics, or the Copts with a T. It was also a major learning center for philosophy. Alexandria is what Athens wished it could be. It actually did it. It had all the philosophies. Big hotbed for Gnosticism. Basilides was there. Valentinus was there. And lots of other ideas. Traditional ideas, New Age ideas. New Age by their standards, not by ours. And of course, it was the home of Philo the famous proponent of Hellenistic Judaism. So who is Philo of Alexandria? He lived from 20 B.C. to A.D. 50, which means he was born before Christ and lived after Christ as well. And he died before Paul died. Paul died probably around 64, 65. So Philo had died in in 50. So he's a contemporary of Jesus and Paul, but had nothing to do with them because he was way over in Egypt in Alexandria but he's doing his writing at the same time. His books had a massive effect. It's really hard to overstate the effect that this non-Christian Jewish philosopher had on Christian theology over the centuries. Philo was a Jewish Platonist. When I say Platonist, what I mean is a follower of the teachings of Plato. Which teachings, you may ask? I'm glad you asked that question. So I want to mention a few of the teachings of Plato from three of his different books. A lot of his books survived, and we have them today, and you can get them for free online, or you could buy them. And what you'll see is his ideas expressed in these books through a form of writing called dialogue. So you have this person talking and that person talking, and they're working out ideas. The first one I want to talk to you about is the allegory of the cave. It's found in his book, The Republic. The allegory of the cave tells a story about prisoners who are locked in a cave whose faces are fixed so they can only look at a wall upon which are shadows from a fire behind them. So there's a fire, and then there are people bringing objects through the cave, and they're seeing the shadow cast from that fire on the wall, and that they think, is the real world, the realm of shadows. But then, one of them escapes from the cave, and he goes outside, and the sun blinds his eyes, and he takes a while to adjust, and when he finally can see clearly, he sees the real world in all of its dimensions and vibrancy and color, and he's enlightened. And so you know what he does? He goes back to the cave and he tells the other prisoners that are in the cave about the real world that exists outside the cave. And they say, you are crazy. We know the real world only involves these two-dimensional shadows on the wall. You're just nuts. So that's the allegory of the cave. So what is the cave? The cave 
is your current experience. This is the cave. <laughs> All we've seen our whole lives are shadows. So what's the task of the philosopher? Is to meditate, to cogitate, to think about the eternal realities that exist beyond this sense-perceptible world in which we live. And that can only really be done if you get rid of your body and die. Because in death, your soul can escape and go to the true world outside the cave. Plato says the following, Moreover, I said, this is in the Republic 7.5.17, C through D. Moreover, I said, you must not wonder that those who attain to this beatific vision are unwilling to descend to human affairs. For their souls are ever hastening into the upper world, where they desire to dwell, which desire of theirs is very natural, if our allegory may be trusted. So we have this idea of another world that's more real than our world, that's an upper world. This is also called the realm of the forms. The forms are idealized versions of everything that exists in our world that exists in this other dimension of this other spiritual realm and in an unchanging way, these forms exist. The perfect version of a chair, of a table, of a house, of everything exists in this other realm, in this unchanging realm of the forms. All right, so that's number one. Number two about Plato, because I told you Philo was a Platonist, right? So is everybody. So <laughs> maybe not everybody, but it's, it's, it's in the water, okay? Everyone is thinking after Plato in the first and second century, if you're educated. To be educated in the ancient world was to be educated in Greek philosophy. There wasn't like another option, right? Uh, so this, this is what educated people, with, what their thought world comprised of. So another document, another book Plato wrote is called the Timaeus. Timaeus is the guy's name that gets... Uh, to have a lot of conversation in this book, so they called it the Timaeus. So this is from 29a through b. He says, Everyone will see that he, the craftsman, must have looked to the eternal, for the world, that's our world, is the fairest of creations, and he is the best of causes. And having been created in this way, the world has been framed in the likeness of that which is apprehended by reason and mind and is unchangeable, and must therefore of necessity, if this is admitted, be a copy of something. So what he's saying here, this is the classic story of creation outside the Bible. The story of creation in the Bible is in Genesis, written by Moses. The story of creation for the philosophers is the Timaeus, written by Plato. Genesis and Timaeus are different. They speak very differently. And the Timaeus... There's a craftsman. The Greek word for, for craftsman is demiurgos. We, we sometimes say demiurge. It's, it's just a word for craftsman. It's like a builder. Okay, So the craftsman is not identified. But Platonic sensibilities said, you know what? There's no way the craftsman can be God. It's got to be some lower being than God because God is too satisfied in his perfection to ever actually make a universe. And so the craftsman does all this work. And so the craftsman looks at the eternal realm of the forms outside the cave. He's looking at that realm, and he's like, all right, I'm going to make a copy of that, and that's our universe. And you can see all the negativity of the Gnostics is missing in Plato. In Plato, the craftsman 
makes the best possible copy. It's not an act of rebellion. All right, on to the last point about Plato, which is a book called The Phaedo, and that's a book that talks about the immortality of the soul. So this is Phaedo 66b through e, which says, So long as we keep to the body and our soul is contaminated with this imperfection. Do you see that? That's a very negative view of the body. There is no chance, as long as we're in our bodies, there's no chance of our ever attaining satisfactorily to our object, which we assert to be truth. In the first place, the body provides us with innumerable distractions in the pursuit of its necessary sustenance. That's like eating, breathing, basic things like that. And any diseases, forget about it, which attack us, hinder our quest for reality. Besides, the body fills us with loves and desires and fears and all the sorts of fancies and a great deal of nonsense with the result that we literally never get an opportunity to think at all about anything. Worst of all, if we do obtain any leisure from the body's claims and turn to some line of inquiry, the body intrudes once more into our investigations, interrupting, disturbing, distracting, and preventing us from getting a glimpse of the truth. We are in fact convinced that if we are ever to have pure knowledge of anything, we must get rid of the body and contemplate things in isolation with the soul in isolation. It's likely to judge from our argument that the wisdom which we desire and upon which we profess to have set our hearts will be attainable only when we are dead and not in our lifetime. This is the intellectual backbone that's driving asceticism. I talked to you about asceticism in the past. That's a desire to avoid bodily pleasures, to focus on the life of the mind. So our bodies and our world are low-level realities at best and prisons at worst. And this is what drove the Gnostics, and this is what drives Philo as well. They had a desire to separate God, the high God, from creation because our world is flawed and we don't want to attribute flaws to a work of God. So Philo desired to show that the Bible was inspired. He believed that very strongly. And by the Bible, for Philo, he's talking about the Greek translation of the Old Testament. He's not a Christian. He doesn't have the New Testament. Actually, much of the New Testament isn't even written when Philo dies. He has the Old Testament in the Greek translation called the Septuagint, and he strongly believes that it's inspired by God, that it's a divine book, that it's a special book, that it's always right. But it says stuff that he knows is wrong. <laughs> you know, like that God created the universe and all sorts of other things that are just like intellectually unpalatable to a sophisticated Platonist like Philo. And so he employs an interpretation strategy called allegory. And I want to show you this here. This is from his book. And we have Philo's books, by the way. Christians preserved them, not the Jews, even though he wasn't a Christian, he was a Jew. Allegorical interpretation, chapter 2, verse 19 says, And God cast a deep trance upon Adam and sent him to sleep, and he took one of his ribs. That's, that sounds normal, right? That's basically what... Genesis says, and so on. The literal statement conveyed in these words is a fabulous one. For how can anyone believe that a woman was made of a rib of a man? 
or in short, that any human being was made out of another. And what hindered God as he had made man out of the earth from making woman in the same manner? For the creator was the same, and the material was almost interminable, from which every distinctive quality whatever was made. And why, when there were so many parts of a man, did not God make the woman out of some other part, rather than out of one of his ribs? Again, of which rib did he make her? And this question would hold even if we were to say that he had only spoken of two ribs. But in truth, he has not specified their number. Was it then the right rib or the left rib? What's he doing here? He's pulling at a thread. He's saying, oh, look, this is ridiculous. There's no way God would do this. It doesn't make sense. And he's not a critic of the Bible. So he's got to make a move. You'll see how he makes the move in just a moment here. He asks himself the question, what is a rib? And then he thinks to himself in verse 21, we say a man has ribs. It's like a saying in their culture, which is equivalent to saying that he has vigor. And we say that a wrestler is a man with strong ribs. So he's like, okay, a rib means strength. And what is stronger than the mind? Verse 35, he took one of his ribs, he took one of the many powers of the mind, namely that power which dwells in the outward senses. So this is how he's interpreting the Bible. He's saying, well, obviously this is absurd, so there must be a deeper meaning, a spiritual interpretation here. That's what allegory is, looking for that metaphor. The rib stands for strength. What's the strongest part of a man? It must be his mind. Only a philosopher would say that, by the way. It must be his mind. So some part of his mind is what God took to make the woman. You see how the moves work? So Philo does this to all different parts of the Bible. Let's talk about the logos. I'm going to talk about the logos over and over and over again, just so you know, with all these different people. Because the logos is a major concept in how they think about God and how they think about creation. And then later for Christians, how they think about Jesus. So the Logos and Philo is the idea that God governs the universe and sustains it via his Logos, his right reason, which is called his firstborn son as a lieutenant of the great king. This is, this is unbelievable that Philo would call the Logos God's firstborn son. This guy's not a Christian, doesn't believe in Jesus, and yet he's calling the word the firstborn son. This is like going to be really attractive, irresistible to Christian intellectuals a century later, <laughs> okay? Uh, the most, he goes on, the most universal of all things is God, and in the second place, the Word, or Logos. This is what we call subordinationism, the idea that the Logos is not on the same plane as God, but in the second place. He goes on, the Logos is the most ancient and the most universal of all things that are created. So Logos is created. It's a created, semi-autonomous being that does God's bidding and is also somehow connected to God in a very intimate way. Just like your reasoning is part of you, but it can be seen as independent, I guess. The Logos was God's organ or body part to create and rule the universe. And when he puzzles over why those guilty of manslaughter would go free from cities of refuge when the high priest dies, Philo applies allegory to escape the difficulty. He writes, this is a quote from him, This difficult and scarcely explicable perplexity we may escape if we adopt the inner and allegorical explanation in accordance with natural philosophy. 
So he's not hiding what he's doing. He's like, I'm going to allegorize this in accordance with natural philosophy. For we say that the high priest is not a man. Who's the high priest, Philo? But is the word of God or the logos of God, who has not only no participation in intentional errors, but none even in those which are involuntary. For Moses says that he, the Logos, cannot be defiled, neither in respect of his father, that is the mind, nor his mother, that is the external sense, because, I imagine, he has received imperishable and wholly pure parents. God, being his father, this is the Logos, the father of the Logos is God, who is also the father of all things, and wisdom, being his mother, by means of whom the universe arrived at creation. Does that sound a little familiar? In light of the Gnostics who said the monad, who is the father, looked at Barbalo, who's this feminine divine principle, and produced the only begotten Christ. So it's, the terminology is a little different. But it's a very similar idea. And Philo is writing before the secret revelation of John. So they could have depended on him and just moved it another stage of complexity from that. Okay, that's enough of Philo. Many of his books survive. You can read them if you want. There's a translation by C.D. Young, which is super affordable. It's been around for a long time. Reading Philo is not easy, though, I warn you. Just like any philosopher, he writes at a very complex level. On to Clement, Clement of Alexandria. Full century later, Philo dies around 50. Clement is born around 150. Same city, though, Alexandria. And he's either born in Athens or Alexandria. We're not really sure. But Clement is trained in Greek philosophy, especially Plato and the Stoics. His family probably practiced mystery religions because he writes about mystery religions a little bit. What is a mystery religion? That's a great question. That's a great question. Let's do a little overview of Greco-Roman religion, just so you're familiar with it, just to remind you in case you, you, know, you forgot or something. All right, so first up, we've got traditional religions. That's the worship of the old gods, like Jupiter, Venus, Artemis, and Ephesus, or even deified Caesars, like Augustus, the Julian family, and so on. So that's traditional religions. They're centered on sacrifice. As uh, my old teacher, Paula Fredrickson, would say, ancient pagan sacrifices were the ritual redistribution of red meat. It's a barbecue. Okay, so the whole city gets together. They parade the gods, these idols, through the city streets. Everyone's happy. Everyone's festive. And, you know, they have the professional priests and virgins and whatever else. And then they get to the temple and they kill a bunch of animals and they barbecue them and pass out the food to everyone. It's a great joyous occasion for a pagan person. Christians and Jews, however, are just like not going to join because that's pagan worship. All right, so that's the classic traditional religions. In addition to them, you had mystery religions. There are the Eleusinian, Mithraic, Orphic mysteries, the Samothracian mysteries. There are all kinds of different mystery religions. And these are private. Traditional religions are public. You show, they're put on by the city. You show up, you get a plate. You know, it's a great, thing, great idea, right? Um, mystery religions are only for the initiated. They're the only ones that can participate. 
Generally, there's a sacred story that they tell. There might even be a sacred handshake, a secret handshake to tell you that you're in this mystery cult. And there was insider terminology, but here's the problem. Since these were secretive religious movements, we don't know hardly anything about them. We know they existed, but we don't know, like, what were they really doing? We suspect they were banqueting and enjoying religious rituals of some sort, but we don't know what it was. Then you had the schools of philosophy. The schools of philosophy answered questions like, what is the universe like? What exists? Of what is our universe comprised? A lot of the ones before Socrates were just really focused on that question. What is most desirable? What is good? How can I live the good life? Those are the questions of the philosophers. If you ask a priest at the temple of Jupiter in Rome, how should I live? How should I treat my wife? He will say, ask the philosophers. I don't know. Because religion and lifestyle are two separate categories in their world. Uh, so Christianity really kind of does all these things. There is a traditional component in the sense that there really is a high God that we we're worshiping. But there's also mysterious elements that like, only Christians are allowed to attend, like communion and so on, um, at least in those early years. And then you had the ethics of Christianity, like leading the good life. So a lot of philosophers found Christianity attractive, like Clement of Alexandria. And when it comes to these different categories, traditional religion, mystery of religion, schools of philosophy, you can join all three. You can, join, you, can, you can worship two, three, seven gods, doesn't matter, on the traditional side. You can join at least one mystery religion. I don't know if they had rules about joining other ones. And you could be a Stoic at the same time, no big deal. These are not separate ideas. And there are other religious expression. There's worshiping ancestral spirits. There's worshiping in sacred spaces, like um, on top of a mountain or by a creek. You know, there are different gods everywhere. So anyhow, Clement traveled all over the Greek-speaking provinces. He found all these different teachers that he was, he was interviewing and trying to get to find his ultimate guru, his ultimate teacher. So he met a Greek of Ionia, a Greek of Magna Graecia, a Greek of Colsyria. He studied under an Egyptian for a little while, an Assyrian, a converted Palestinian Jew. And then finally, in AD 180, he found Pantinus in Alexandria with whom he found rest. So he was searching, right? After his education in Christianity, he studied under Pantinus, and Clement was ordained a priest in the year 189. And he stayed in Alexandria until 202, when a persecution broke out, the Severan persecution. And he fled to Caesarea in Cappadocia, and he never came back to Alexandria. So he leaves in 202, and he's gone. And he dies probably around... 215. So let's talk about his books, Clement's books. Well, we've got the Protrapticus, we've got the Pedagogos, we've got the Stromata, and we've got Who is the Rich Man Who Will Be Saved, which is not really a book, it's a sermon of his that has survived. And so I want to go through each of these with you and talk about them a little bit. Uh, as far as the Protrapticus goes, the typical English translation of that is Exhortation to Greeks, written about the year 195. This is a book written to outsiders. It's not so much for Christians as it is for outsiders 
to explain to them Christianity in a way that, that would be palatable to them. Clement is he's a top-shelf guy. Like, he can speak, he, he can make references, he, he's super educated, he knows how to speak to cultured city people in Alexandria who are not Christians. And so he does. Then he has the pedagogos, which is uh, translated to English as tutor or educator. It's the idea that Christ is the educator. And this is a book for every Christian. This is, this is going to cover the basics of what it means to be a Christian. And it's so fascinating of a book to look at. He's strongly influenced by Plato and Stoic philosophers, but also Homer. The old um, myths about you know, the, the adventures and, and the wars of Troy and Odysseus and all this. Um, he quotes Homer 60 times in The Educator. So he's a cultured guy who's going to make reference to all the literary works of his time. It's a hysterical book because he talks about how Christians should comport themselves. That's a word we don't use too much, but like, how should you carry yourself? How should you be at the dinner table? He talks about it in depth. Table manners, like all these kinds of things. And uh, I'm going to show you a little quote here. He says, and this is kind of a principle he has, pleasure sought for its own sake. This is the educator, chapter 10. Pleasure sought for its own sake, even within the marriage bonds, is a sin and contrary both to law and to reason. This is such a powerful statement because it's totally different than our culture today. We live in a hedonist society. We believe pleasure is good. Full stop. And they lived in an ascetic society. Everyone was suspicious of pleasure. Like, are you sure you should do that? Clement's the kind of guy that would go to the potluck church dinner and say no to the homemade apple pie at the end of it. He's like, oh, no thanks. That's Clement of Alexandria. He has moderation and balance. And he's not going to seek pleasure unless there's a good reason. But he's not a strict ascetic either. He's really a middle guy, kind of a snobby, cultured guy that just knows how to walk the walk in a way that people will respect. So you can wear nice clothes, but not if they're too expensive. You can listen to music, but not if it's overly passionate. You can wear perfumes, but only if they're not too strong. You get the impression? He wants Christians to be classy. So like for guys, you can't shave. It's too effeminate, sorry, don't shave. For girls, no cosmetics, no makeup, because you should be decorating your soul, not your body. So he's, he's stricter than most Christians would be today, but at the same time, he's kind of loose compared to a lot of people in his time. Here, let me give you a quote. This is from chapter 2. He's talking about wine. As for adults, when they take their midday lunch, if that is their practice, let them take only a little bread and no liquids at all, so that the excessive moisture in their bodies may be assimilated and absorbed by the dry food. <laughs> if they, sorry. If they should become thirsty, let them relieve their thirst with water, but not too much of it. Minds that bear something of the divine should not be overcome with wine. But toward evening, near the time for supper, we may use wine, since we are no longer engaged in the public lectures which demand the absence of wine. At that time of day, the temperature has turned cooler than it was at midday. Keep in mind, this guy's in Egypt. 
so that we may need to stimulate the failing natural heat of the body with a little artificial warmth. But even then, we must only use a little wine. Certainly, we should not go so far as to demand whole bowls of it, because that would be sheer extravagance. One more quote from The Educator. This is from chapter 5. I just couldn't not quote this to you. As for laughter, how should Christians laugh, Clement? Clement says, well, I'm glad you asked. As for laughter itself, it too should be kept under restraint. Even as you laugh, keep it under restraint, okay? Of course, when it rings out as it should, it proves the presence of discipline, but if it gets out of hand, it is a sure index of lack of self-control. We need not take away from a person any of the things that are natural to him, but only set a limit and due proportion to them. It is true that a human is an animal who can laugh. But it is not true that he therefore should laugh at everything. The horse is an animal that neighs, but it does not neigh at everything. (laughs) But the sudden loss of control over one's composure in the case of women is called a giggle, the laugh of harlots, and in the case of men, a guffaw, the laughter of idle suitors, offensive to the ear. So that's the kind of nitty-gritty precision that Clement is going to give the people in his church as a pastor, as a priest, a pastor. Uh, he's going to be uh, preaching and, and trying to develop cultured Christians. All right, on to his most interesting book called The Stromata, also sometimes called Stromates. Uh, it's, a, it's a book that means miscellanies or patchwork. And uh, it's for advanced Christians. Most people should not read this book. In fact, he wrote the book intentionally to be difficult to simple-minded people. The book is confusing. You don't even get the introduction until book four, in which we read, Let these notes of ours, as we have often said, for the sake of those that consult them carelessly and unskillfully, be of varied character. And as the name itself indicates, patched together. That's a play on the name of the book, Stromata. Passing constantly from one thing to another, and in the series of discussions, hinting at one thing and demonstrating another. Do you hear that? Let me say that again. In the series of discussions, hinting at one thing and demonstrating another. He, he knows he's being abstruse. He's doing it on purpose. For those who seek for gold, says Heraclitus, dig much earth and find little gold. But those who are of the truly golden race, in mining for what is allied to them, will find the much in little. For the word will find one to understand it. The miscellanies of notes contribute then to the recollection and expression of truth in the case of him who is able to investigate with reason. So in the Stromata, he talks about how philosophy was to lead pagans to Christ. He talks about a chronology of the world. He says that Plato was probably influenced by the Jews, especially Moses' writings. And how Christians should not seek martyrdom. Now, if you get caught, you should stand up for your faith and and die for your faith, just like Christ and the apostles. But you should not seek after martyrdom. On to his last book. I mean, there are some other stuff of his that has survived too, but these are the main four that I'm familiar with. It's called, Who is the Rich Man Who Will Be Saved? That's a sermon where he talks to the wealthy in the church and explains to them that they need to use their wealth to help the poor in the church. He talks about how you should not pursue wealth, but if you have it already, it's okay to keep it. 
Uh, so that's a typical moderate position of Clement of Alexandria. Let's talk about his theology. As I uh, mentioned, he talks about levels of Christians. You have simpler Christians, and then you have more elite Christians, advanced Christians. He calls the advanced Christians in the book Stramata, he calls them the Gnostic. He's not a Gnostic. He's trying to out-Gnostic the Gnostics. He's trying to take the name back. Because the word Gnostic means knower, or roughly equivalent to the word intellectual. He's like, you want to know who the intellectual is? The person that does Christianity the way I'm saying. It's not these other knuckleheads. So he's like very intentionally trying to take the term back. It's a strategy that totally fails. Nobody else even tries it. But like, there it is with Clement. He's like, yeah, I'm a Gnostic. And everyone's like, are you sure you want to <laughs> say that, bud? If you remember Justin Martyr, he had this idea of resurrection. He said, like, if you don't believe in resurrection, you're not a real Christian. Because he knew that none of the Gnostics could agree to that. Clement's just like, you know what? The Gnostics are just not good at being intellectuals. Let me show you what a true Gnostic looks like and does a different approach here. He also has an allegorical interpretation of the Bible. His definition of God sounds a lot like what we've seen with the Gnostics in Plato as well. In Stramata 5.12 we read, This discourse respecting God is most difficult to handle. For since the first principle of everything is difficult to find out, the absolutely first and oldest principle, which is the cause of all other things being and having been, is difficult to exhibit. For how can that be expressed, which is neither genus nor difference nor species nor individual nor number nay more, is neither an event nor that to which an event happens? No one can rightly express him wholly. For on account of his greatness, he is ranked as the all and is the father of the universe nor are there any parts to be predicated of him. For the one is indivisible, wherefore also it is infinite. There is nothing antecedent to the unbegotten. So that's him talking about God. Sounds similar to what we read when we talked about the Gnostics before. And there are other Gnostic documents that talk very similar to this, where it says you can't really say anything about the one, the supreme one. He's unknowable. All we can know is like sort of like lower level realities, but the, the one behind the curtains, you never really can even say anything positive about him. You can just say what he's not. And this later gives birth to the idea of apophatic theology, which is a theological movement where you define things based on what they're not rather than what they are. He also talks about the Logos. In Clement, we uh, find a number of interesting statements about the Logos. Uh, of course, for Clement, the Logos just is the Son of God. There's no distinction there. Existing before Jesus. I don't know if that clarified or made you more confused. But Clement says in Stramata 7.2, The nature of the Son, which is nearest to Him, who is alone, the Almighty One, is the most perfect and most holy. You see that? The Son is nearest to Him who is alone, the Almighty One. There's one God for Clement. And the Son is the one nearest to the one God. He also says the Son is, so to speak, an energy of the Father. In Exhortation to the Greeks, 1188, he says, Christ is the husbandman of God, or the farmer, who implants in us God's laws. In Exhortation to the Greeks, 12, he says, If it is thy wish, be thou also initiated, and thou shalt join the choir along with the angels around the unbegotten and indestructible and only true God, 
the Word of God, raising the Him with us. This Jesus, who is eternal, the one great high priest of the one God, there it is again, and of His Father, prays for and exhorts men. So this is an invitation to join in a, a singing with the angels and with the Word of God, who is singing along with us, to the indestructible and only true God, the unbegotten. So you can see in Clement, there's a high God, and then there's the, the Word, the Logos, the Son, and then you have angels, and then you have human beings, right? And you kind of have this universe stacked in that way. And that is what I would call a Logos subordinationist. I used that term before. It's somebody that believes Jesus was a Logos, the Word, before he was born as a human being, but that he's not equal to God. He's subordinate to God. In another place, he writes, uh, this is in his Who is the Rich Man, uh, chapter 6. He says, he commences his teaching with this, turning the pupil to God, the good, and first and only dispenser of eternal life, which the Son, who received it of him, gives to us. He then, who would live the true life, is enjoined first to know him, whom no one knows, except the Son reveal him, Next is to be learned the greatness of the Savior after him. So it's very clear that you have God first and then the Savior after him to be known. Scholars debate, however, whether or not Clement thought the Logos was eternal or got externalized at a certain point in time. And there's a big debate on that. There's scholarly journal articles, and it's, we're already out of time, so <laughs> we're not going to get into it. But I just wanted to let you know about it. Let's talk about his legacy. Clement of Alexandria set the precedent for combining Platonism with the Bible through the use of allegory, a strategy that came to dominate for centuries. Philo had done it before Clement, but not with the New Testament. Clement does it with the New Testament as well. He influenced Origen, Clement influenced Origen, who, as we'll see in our next session, was the most influential Christian theologian of the third century. Clement was regarded as a saint. This is... Kind of hysterical. He was regarded as a saint by the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches, but then they changed their minds. Very briefly, just while we're winding down, before we get to our review, let me just tell the story. So there was a man named Photius in the 10th century in the East, Constantinople, that region. And he is reading Clement of Alexandria, and he's like, this dude's a total heretic. He does not believe what we teach at this church. Like, this, this, is, this guy's, why are we reading him? Why do we call him a saint? And he writes this whole expose against Clement of Alexandria, and he gets, like, de-sainted in the 10th century in the East. Meanwhile, in the West, the Roman Catholic Church, they just, like, keep recognizing Clement as a saint for another 500 years until 1586. They discover that Clement is also a heretic by their standards, and they remove him from the Roman martyrology. So Clement is a, is a controversial cat, um, interesting guy, doing something that I wouldn't recommend doing, which is combining Platonic philosophy and the Bible. They're just too different. You know, to quote another person from around this time, Tertullian, what Concord has Athens with Jerusalem. They don't mix together. Let's review. We saw in the beginning that Alexandria, Egypt, was a major metropolis from which not only grain, but philosophical ideas spread to the Mediterranean world. Philo was a first century Jew who applied Middle Platonism to the Old Testament via allegory. Influenced by Plato's Timaeus, 
Philo used the concept of logos to separate the high God from creation. So logos is the craftsman. I don't think I said that so clearly as this. For Philo, the logos was God's organ to create and govern the world. Clement of Alexandria drew upon Philo's work and applied it to the New Testament. Clement wanted Christians to live in a proper and moderate manner. In an effort to show the supremacy of Christianity, Clement attempted to out-Gnostic the Gnostics, labeling the enlightened Christian the Gnostic, which is hysterical. For Clement, the Logos is subordinate to the Father, who alone is the true God. And the last point, he might have believed that the Logos existed eternally as God's high priest. All right, so all of this is about Philo and Clement. As it turns out, all that we've covered is really just introductory to the person we're going to talk about next, which is Origin of Alexandria. And we'll do that next as we continue our journey through early church history. Well, that brings this episode to a close. What did you think? Come on over to Podcast 487, Philo and Clement of Alexandria, and leave your feedback there. We'd love to hear from you. And I'm looking forward to sharing with you the trajectory of Christological development in future episodes. Uh, As I mentioned in the intro, Philo and Clement are just building the foundation upon which Origen of Alexandria will build the walls, and then Alexander of Alexandria and Athanasius of Alexandria will build the roof, and then upon which the Cappadocian fathers, the two Gregories and Basil of Caesarea, will build the spire that will eventually form the completed edifice of the Trinity Doctrine in the year 381, that eventually Augustine himself will champion in the 5th century, essentially codifying it for both East and West for the entire Middle Ages. So although these guys were a little obscure, they are absolutely indispensable for understanding the trajectory of development for understanding who Christ is and his connection with the Logos and the development and evolution of the idea through the centuries. And uh, there's just no quick way to present all this. I mean, the previous sentences I just said about these different names that I rattled off probably don't even mean anything to you at this time. But I just encourage you that if you're listening to this class, just keep going because we're going to get into the development step by step so that by the time it fully develops at the end of the fourth century, you're going to feel very informed. And I think you're going to be very impressed by how different the stereotype of what happened with Arius being some wacko outsider, some upstart youngster who just had too much fire in his belly and a lack of brains in his head, which none of that's true, by the way. Uh, But uh, that that perspective that Arius was a controversialist and brought in these weird new ideas and uh, the Trinity was always there. You know, th- these, these myths that are told, you know, and I keep coming across them in books. It's so frustrating. We have better information now. And, uh, you know, this is not a matter of bias on one side or the other. It's a, it's a question of truth. What are the facts? What actually happened We have the primary source documents. Like We can look at what they said, and really top-shelf secondary sources will admit 
that there was a different story going on than the one we hear at least preached in sermons and in more popular level Christian history books. So anyhow, I hope that teased you a little bit to keep moving forward here in this series. Uh, I think it's fascinating just in its own right. You know, I love all this stuff, but uh, what I'm trying to say is that it's all going to pay off. It's all going to pay off. Like if you're interested in the development of Christology in particular, this is where you need to be. So stay tuned for future episodes. Thanks everybody for tuning in. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitutio.org. I'll catch you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.